When we think of financial gain, we normally think of something like this. A millionaire was asked how he got rich. He said, well, I began by buying peanuts for five cents a bag and selling them for 10 cents. I worked long hours. I worked all the holidays. However, I didn't become a millionaire for another five years. What happened, the man asked. Well, then my father died and left me a chain of hotels. <laughs> and we tend to think of life in terms of gains and losses, in some cases of profit and loss. We gain certain things, we lose certain things, and we hope that in the end that our gains outweigh our losses. Or maybe in our most sarcastic moments, we relate with that bumper sticker. You ever notice you don't see very many bumper stickers anymore? That one that used to say, he who dies with the most toys wins. We give our lives to working for toys. And in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ in terms of gain and loss. What is gain and what is loss? And in this, Paul shows us how crucial it is to understand the nature of the gospel, what the gospel really is. And so in order to introduce us to this important section of Scripture, let me make an analogy. Imagine for a moment that in the course of a month, you have made a number of deposits to your bank account. Now, you just didn't simply go to the ATM and deposit that way. You didn't drop them in the night deposit box, but you went into the bank, you walked into the bank, you filled out a deposit slip that had your bank account number on it. You attached the checks to your bank account and you gave it to the teller and they ran it through their machine several times that can't ever get the creases, you know, but you're pretty sure that it, it, you know, and you didn't do that just once, but you did it a number of times during the month. And on each account, on each occasion, you made a note of your deposit and you tallied in your mind so that by the end of the month, you were feeling pretty confident in relationship to your bank balance. And then your statement came. And when you turned to it, you looked at it and you were horrified because what you thought was there wasn't there. And indeed, it became quickly apparent to you that all the money that you thought you had been paying into your account, thinking that it was going in, was in fact actually going out that each check you had deposited had been transferred as a debit rather than a credit. So much so that instead of being in profit at the end of the month, you were actually in great loss. Now this is a serious situation because it's the very essence and reverse of what you thought was the case. It wasn't simply that your balance showed that the things had not been credited to your account, so it was as it was before the deposits were made, that there was some kind of neutral experience, that would have been bad enough that he didn't get credit for these. But what had happened was that every actual transaction that you thought was a credit was actually a debit. You thought you'd put $200 in the bank, it wasn't there. Not only that, but it also debited your account $200. So you turn your statement over and you look and you see that you are in deep debt. And the reason I use this analogy is because I want you to think along the lines, along these lines in terms of the bank balance of heaven, your bank balance in heaven. What if 
What if the things we regard as putting us in profit with God are actually a loss? What if the things that we do, the events that we attend, the professions that we make, to which we attach great significance, in the back of our minds, we got this little tally going, believing to be credits to our account. What if those circumstances, instead of being credits, are actually, in fact, debits? It would be, by any standard, a grave miscalculation, because now it has eternal significance. As dreadful as the checkbook scenario might be, it pales into significance compared to the thought of standing before the bar of God's judgment only to discover when it's too late that all I thought to be gain was a dead loss. And that is essentially the context of which Paul is addressing these Philippian believers. And the example Paul gives in order to warn the Philippians comes from his own life and testimony. So please turn to Philippians chapter 3 at verse 4, the third chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians. In order to show us the absolute foolishness and stupidity of trying to live according to one's own self-righteousness, of chalking up points with God, Paul throws down the gauntlet here. And it's like Paul is saying to those Judaizers that he's just mentioned, let me see you top this. You dogs, you evil workers, you mutilators. Verse 4 of Philippians chapter 3. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far, I far more. Now Paul is going to list seven items that most people would put in their spiritual profit column. The dogs, the evil workers, the mutilators, they would certainly, they have put it in their spiritual profit column. And they've been teaching others to put it in their spiritual profit column. And I would suppose that the majority of people living today would do that as well. Because there's not a thing wrong with anything that we're going to see on the list. You know, Pharisee, we, we can debate that because we know what Phariseeism today. But in Paul's day, these would have been all good things. These would have been all great things. And no one can match Paul's column. You think you can put all those things in your spiritual profit column? Paul says, get a load of this. No one can top it. And as we will see, he only makes note of these entries not to boast, not to brag about what he's done and who he is, but because when he met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, he moved all of these items into the lost column. Paul is for inherited privileges, that he gained by inheritance, then he lists three personal accomplishments. The four inherited privileges are listed in verse 5. Paul was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. First of all, Paul was circumcised on the eighth day. Literally in the text, it says, with respect to circumcision, an eight-day one, an eight-day one. He was circumcised by his parents seven days after his birth, the Jewish eighth day, in strict compliance with the Abrahamic covenant. Most significantly, this meant that Paul was not a proselyte from paganism. He was not a later-in-life convert. He was an eight-dayer, an insider from birth, a true Israelite, we will see. You know, in the 20th century in our country, they used to talk about 
old money and new money. If you had come by your wealth and prestige and social standing on account of your parents and their inheritance, you were held in much higher regard and much higher socially, politically, economically, in every other way because it was old money. But if you worked hard for your own money and your place in the world, that was new money. And you were less acceptable in the elite circles because you and your family were not an insider from birth. I always think of the true story, the unsinkable Molly Brown. Molly Brown was new money from the gold fields in San Francisco. And uh, she was on the Titanic. That's why she was unsinkable, you know, because she survived the Titanic. But those people who had old money hated her and treated her so badly and she had a wit and a sense of humor. She could dish it back out the same way they gave it. But she was new money, so she didn't count for anything. Paul was an eight-dayer. He was not a proselyte from paganism. Secondly, he says, he's of the nation of Israel. This had meant that in addition to not being a proselyte, he couldn't possibly be a child of proselytes, those who had converted to the Jewish faith. Racially, he was a pure-blooded Israelite. Now, Israel and Israelite were inside terms of which the Jews referred to themselves in those days. Other people may have called them Jews, but they called themselves the children of Israel. They called themselves Israelites. Paul was a total insider. He had the oldest kind of spiritual credit to his count. And then thirdly, Paul was, he said, of the tribe of Benjamin. It's interesting to note that of the sons of David, the 12 tribes of Israel, the tribes of the sons of Jacob, not I said David, Jacob, that Benjamin was the only son who was actually born in the promised land. The other 11 were born outside of the promised land. Of all the sons of Israel, only the sons of Benjamin would be what we'd call natural born citizens today. And also the tribe of Benjamin was the only tribe to remain faithful to Judah and the house of David after the death of Solomon, the king. The other ten tribes became the northern kingdom. They were destroyed by the Assyrians. But it was the tribe of Benjamin who went into exile into Babylon with the tribe of Judah and returned from exile with Judah to resettle Jerusalem. Daniel the prophet, we don't know, but he would have been either the tribe of Benjamin or the tribe of Judah, because he wasn't a Levite. There were Levites that went as well. And it was the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin that rebuilt Jerusalem and settled Jerusalem during Nehemiah's time. So Benjamin remained at the core of Israel's spirituality. King Saul, Israel's first king, was a Benjaminite. And he was named King Saul. And what was the Apostle Paul's given name? Saul. He was Benjaminite to the hill. He was radiated. He would have radiated intersider pride. And fourthly, Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Even though Paul had been born outside the Holy Land in Tarsus and Cilicia, he was a Hebrew. And his parents would have been Hebrews before him. That means Hebrew of Hebrews. Hebrew of Hebrews also meant at the time that he spoke both Hebrew and Aramaic. Aramaic being the Hebrew dialect that they spoke in Babylon and brought back, it would have been the, the language that Jesus would have given the Sermon on the Mount in Aramaic. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. It means he read the Hebrew, he read the scriptures in Hebrews, he could speak the Aramaic dialect. 
And uh, he spoke both of these when a lot of people who were born outside of the Holy Land, as was Paul was, only spoke Greek and didn't know either Hebrew or Aramaic. So Paul prayed and read the scriptures in Hebrew. And even though Paul was born in Cilicia, his parents made sure they had the best possible education in Jerusalem under the famous Rabbi Gamaliel. Paul was a private school insider. And see, we, before we even get to what he had done, he, he's got all this going for him. And in effect, it, it's much like the prestige and his upbringing that the New England Blue Bloods called it, whose genealogy and education and position had been established facts for generation after generation. But Paul didn't rest on his ancestry or name, as so many of the privileged did. His track record was phenomenal. And we see this in his trio of achievements, three things that he did. So next, Paul adds his personal achievements into the spiritual prophet column. As to the law of Pharisee, verse 5. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. First of all, as to the law of Pharisee. Now, Phariseeism at the time was a lay movement that had its beginnings after the Jews returned from the exile. The movement solidified during what we call the Maccabean times. If you ever heard of 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th Maccabees, the apocryphal literature, those history books between the Testaments. And uh, by the first century, the Pharisees were the most impressive, most elite group in Israel. According to Josephus, the historian, they numbered about 6,000, which wasn't very many. They were an elite denomination within Israel. The word Pharisee means separated one, separated one. So the Pharisees distanced themselves from unclean persons, and they ate only what uh, observant Jews should eat, and they only ate with observant Jews. In Acts chapter 23, Paul told the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, that his ancestors were Pharisees. However, Paul's Phariseeism wasn't a matter of choice, was a matter of choice and deep conviction. He voluntarily bound himself to keep the hundreds of commandments of the oral law. Paul was a brilliant, intransigent Pharisee, a heavyweight who could hold his own with anyone. In Paul's second personal achievement, he adds his personal zeal. As to zeal a persecutor. Saul of Tarsus, or the Apostle Paul as we know him, orchestrated a terror campaign against the church. And he true, he, he, he gained a growing infamy, infamy as what we would call a Pharisaic terrorist. Going after people, chasing them unto death, as he said. Getting letters from, from the governor so he could go to Damascus and persecute and kill Christians. And Luke chronicles in the book of Acts, most notably, that Paul's presence at the gruesome stoning of Stephen as he guarded the garments of the executioners while he gazed approvingly upon the execution of Stephen. And most significant, when Jesus met the apostle Paul or, or Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, the first thing that Jesus mentioned was, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Jesus mentions persecution. Interestingly enough, a sidelight there, Jesus said to Saul of Tarsus, if you persecute one of mine, you persecute me. That's how personal the Lord Jesus takes it. 
But Paul's self-appointed zeal initiated and led the way to what we would call today ethnic cleansing, trying to stamp out the Jew, the Christians among the Jews. And Paul was highly esteemed for his actions. And lastly, Paul adds to his spiritual accomplishments as to the law, blameless. Notice Paul doesn't say that he was sinless or perfect, but he says he was blameless. How can that be? The Pharisees assumed that a faithful Israelite could keep the 613 commandments of the Old Testament. And how could they keep those? Because the law provided rituals, procedures to receive purification and forgiveness. You know, outside uh, the temple grounds in Jerusalem, there's all these purification baths. So anytime you go to the temple, you go to this perfect, perfect, through this bath, and then you go into the temple, and at that point, you're blameless because you have been uh, purified. Paul's conduct was blameless in the sense that blameless describes an exemplary way to live life in accordance with the Pharisaic interpretations of Scripture. And this is how his peers saw him as well, totally blameless. Peter O'Brien asserts that Paul, quote, speaks of his blamelessness as an objective fact, and incontestable, as incontestable as his circumcision, his membership in the tribe of Benjamin, and his persecution of the church. Paul later, Paul known as Saul of Tarsus, was blameless under the law. This is an amazing account of accomplishments, an amazing claim. Paul was a spiritual athlete in a category all by himself. This man had great focus. He had great confidence. He had great self-possession. He had great discipline. He had an iron will. If any living soul could gainsay Paul's fourfold insider credentials, if anyone could excel his threefold performance, no. His sevenfold accomplishments here put him in a class of his own. And Paul's claim, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, was no empty boast. Listen well, you Judaizers, you dogs, you evil workers, you mutilators. Paul is saying, listen well because of you guys who want to take these laws and obligations and put them on the Christians. You want to bring this back into the church of Jesus Christ. Those of you would say you can count up your own things and, and find credit with God. Listen well to what this spiritual superman has to say. In verse 7 of Philippians chapter 3, Paul moves all 70s extraordinary accomplishments over into the debit column where they belong. All of the cherished treasures in his gain columns suddenly became deficits. Verse 7, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Everything in his credit column had been transferred to the debit column where it belonged. And now Christ alone stands in the credit column. Paul counts all these things as loss for the sake of Christ. When Paul received Christ, he eventually lost his reputation. He lost his religion as he had had it. He lost the approval of men. He lost his freedom. 
Eventually, he would lose his life. But he gained more than what he lost. And what he didn't lose, such as his Hebrew heritage and being of the tribe of Benjamin, he didn't lose his education. He still counted these things as loss. Why? Because none of these things could save him and make him right with Jesus Christ. Because none of it makes no never mind, as my grandma used to say. It counts for nothing when it comes to our salvation. It counts for nothing. It makes no never mind in walking in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I remember the words of Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was one of the missionaries who gave his life in Ecuador to bring Christ to the Aka Indians. And Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So Paul tells us what he has gained in verses 8 and 9. First of all, Paul tells us that he has gained Christ. Verse 8. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Of knowing Christ. You know, I like to do this when I do premarital counseling because the Bible says husbands are to know their wives. You know, and, and I ask the, the groom-to-be, you know, do you know your wife? Oh, yeah. I said, can you pick her out of a crowd? Oh, yeah, I know, that's her. And I say, that's not what the Bible's talking about. <laughs> To know your wife is to know her intimately, to know her likes, her dislikes, to know her needs in, in particular. Because we can have historical information about people, but to know Christ means to have a personal relationship with Him through faith. To have a personal relationship with Him through faith. And this is the experience that Jesus mentioned. It's the experience that Jesus prayed for the night before He went to the cross. Jesus prayed that night he said, Father, this is eternal life. This is eternal life. When we hear a phrase like that, we ought to, okay, this is, this is it. What is eternal life? That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's why we, why we ask people. We used to do this more, but we don't use the phraseology very much anymore. You know, I remember going to people and say, do you know Jesus yeah, that, that's the question we need to ask. That's the, the information we need to find out. Christianity is Christ. It's knowing him. And Paul puts this in very intimate terms here. He says, knowing Jesus as my Lord, knowing Christ, Jesus, my Lord, that personal relationship. There's a threefold designation here of, of what it means to know Christ, a threefold description that encompasses Jesus' three offices of prophet, priest, and king. The designation Christ views him as the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the messenger or prophet of God. The name Jesus views him as Savior. What does the name Jesus mean? We would say it means Jesus saves, Jehovah saves, Yahweh saves. The name Jesus sees him as Savior, the believer's great high priest. And Lord views him as the sovereign king over all creation. Knowing Jesus is knowing him in this way as prophet, priest, and king. Salvation only comes through deep knowledge and an intimate love bond with Jesus Christ our Lord that God gives us through faith. 
commenting on what it means to have the knowledge of faith of Christ. F.B. Meyer wrote, We may know him personally, intimately, face to face. Christ does not live back in the centuries nor amid the clouds of heavens. He is near us, with us, compassing our path in our lying down and acquainted with all our ways. But we cannot know him in this mortal life except through the illumination and teaching of the Holy Spirit. And we must surely know Christ, not as a stranger who turns in to visit for the night, or as the exalted king of men, there must be the inner knowledge of those whom he counts his own familiar friends, whom he trusts with his secrets, who eat with him of his own bread. We're going to be doing that in a few minutes. We're going to eat with him of his own bread. To know Christ in the storm of battle, to know him in the valley of shadow, to know him when the solar light irradiates our faces or when they are darkened with disappointment and sorrow, to know the sweetness of his dealing with bruised reeds and smoking flax, to know the tenderness of his sympathy and the strength of his right hand. All this invokes many varieties of experience in our part, but each of them, like the facets of a diamond, will reflect the prismatic beauty of his glory from a new angle. For the estimable privilege of knowing Jesus Christ, Paul willingly suffered the loss of all things by which he might seek to earn salvation or credit with God. The apostle went so far as to count them but rubbish so that he might gain, that he might appropriate personally Jesus Christ. All efforts to obtain salvation through human achievement are as much rubbish as anything. The Greek word here for rubbish is skubalon. It's a very strong word. In the King James Version, it's translated dung. It means waste, dung, manure, excrement. All that list of good stuff is skubalon. Paul expresses in the possible strongest language his utter disdain for those who would say, you've got to have religious credits. You've got to do these things to impress God, to become. In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, he says, they're worthless. They're skubalon. Paul would have hardly endorsed Isaiah's declaration that all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. And lastly, in the credit column, after all the garbage has been cleared out, we find the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Verse 9, that may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of of faith. Righteousness was the great goal of Paul's life when he was a Pharisee, but it was self-righteousness, a works righteousness, a righteousness that nobody could obtain. But when Paul trusted Christ, he lost all his own self-righteousness and he gained the righteousness of Christ. Lost all his self-righteousness and gained the righteousness of Christ. We have a theological term that's in, in the Bible the technical word, the theological word for this is called imputation, to impute. It means to put to one's account, to credit to one's account, imputation. It's an accounting term. 
where you credit someone's account. All the garbage of a person's self-effort, all the works, all the filthy rags, as God considered these, all the self-righteousness are moved into the debit column where they belong. And the righteousness of Christ is imputed, put to your account when you receive Jesus Christ. It means that as Paul looked at his own record and discovered he was spiritually bankrupt. He looked at Christ's record and saw that Christ was perfect. And when Paul trusted Jesus Christ, he saw God put Christ's righteousness into his account. And more than that, Paul discovered that his sins. Okay, what happens to the debit column? We haven't dealt with that. You know, if you're an accountant, these things got to, you know, they got to balance here. How can we get to the, how can we have the right Christ righteousness in this column? And we still got all this stuff in the debit column. Paul discovered that his sins had been put into Christ's account when he died on the cross. This has been called the great exchange. When Jesus died on the cross, all of our iniquity, every sin we ever committed or ever will commit was transferred to his account, was laid on him, and he paid the penalty for every one of those by his death. And when we receive Christ, all his righteousness is laid upon us, imputed to our account. This is the great exchange. My scubalon, my filthy rags, for his righteousness. This is the gospel. This is faith in the gospel. And Paul, and God promised Paul the same way that he promises us that he would never write Paul's sins or our sins against us anymore. As far as the east is from the west, our sins have been taken away from us. Why didn't the Bible say as far as the north is the south? Because you go north till you get to the North Pole and then you're going south. So north and south meet, but east and west never meet. As far as the depths of the sea, our sins have been cast away from us. And Paul says that this righteousness is brought about by Christ's faithfulness. And then he tells us that we appropriate it by human faith. Look at the last part of verse 9. The righteousness, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, on the basis of faith. On the basis of our faith, we gain Christ's righteousness. And here we have a definition of saving faith in the way that it works. This is saving faith. It's not just a profession of faith. It's not just saying, oh, I know who Jesus is. I know Jesus. This is saving faith because it includes abandoning all those things with which we would credit ourselves, relying instead on the faithful work of Jesus Christ. It means abandoning all those things with which we would credit ourselves, relying instead on the faithful work of Christ. So let me ask a question. Does your faith in Christ include abandoning those things by which you would credit yourself? If you're not willing to move those things into the debit column where Jesus pays it all, it's not saving faith. The only thing that saving faith has in the credit column is Jesus Christ. The only thing that saving faith has in the credit column is Jesus Christ. 
Several years ago, I was privileged to lead one of my best, best friends to a saving faith in Jesus. He accepted Christ in my living room when we lived over at Fourth and Boise here in Emmett. We were up late one night. Uh, it was a hot summer night. We were out in the yard, and it was still hot and stuff, but then we, we heard the mosquito fogger coming. <laughs> you know, you love those hot nights in Emmett when it's July or August, and the, the nights don't cool off, and then the mosquito fogger would come by, so we run into the house, we close all the windows, the doors, you know, we hear the thing, it's going by, you know, and we can start to smell it a little bit, because our old... 1904 house wasn't real tight you know and you know it was really kind of a miserable night and uh, we stayed up late at night and my friend was asking me questions about the bible as he often did we talked about these things a lot and i was trying to answer them the best i could and his questions that particular night had to do with what does it mean that jesus is lord you know so i was trying to give him you know, this theological argument, and yeah, I don't know, I can't even remember exactly what I said. That, that's a tough question. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord? And as we were talking and catching me by complete surprise, he dropped to his knees on the wood floor in our living room and said, I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And so he prayed right there to do it after years of talking to him about Bible questions out of nowhere he came to understand what it means that Jesus is Lord and Savior so he went back home and the Lord used him to witness to his mom and a few weeks later his mom prayed to receive Christ at his sister's home out on the south slope and as his sisters and her family were talking to her you know, after she received Christ, she said, you know, this is so great. I've been to Tibet and I've talked to the Dalai Lama. And I have, and I've learned about Buddha. And she named all these religious accomplishments. And she says, and now I have Jesus too. Now I have it all. Jesus will not compete with anything or anybody else in our lives. And as long as you depend upon anything or anybody else, you've got nothing. You've got nothing. You've got worse than nothing because you are still burdened with a sin debt that you can never repay. And you will be held accountable for that sin debt without Jesus Christ. You know, around our house, we quote movie lines. Yeah, they come out of movies. And, uh, in Mr. Holland's opus, Mr. Holland's opus, you know, he's been trying to teach this poor girl in the band to play the clarinet, redheaded girl. Her name's Miss Lane, and and uh, she just can't get it. So she practices long hours in the music room after school every day, you know. And one day, Mr. Holland's going by, and he hears, you know, this squeaking coming out of the clarinet, and he just says in passing, "Give it up, Miss Lane." And what he meant was give up the practice, but she took that to mean I'm never going to be able to play the clarinet. You know, but there really is a truth in that. Jesus comes passing by. He says, give it up, Bill. Give it up, whatever your name is, and come and follow me. Shall we pray?
Father, as we come to this time of prayer before we come to the Lord's table, Father, I do thank you that our Savior Jesus Christ invites us to come to him, invites us to come to his table. That if we know him in faith, having given everything else up and have only Christ, Father, that we are welcome to come to his table and take of the bread of the cup, the bread which is his body which has been broken for us, the cup which is his blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Father, if there's anything that's keeping any of us from faith in Jesus Christ to fully trusting in him and him only, if there's anything that would keep us from coming to his table, as believers. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and in our minds right now. Bring us to that saving faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Bring us to that point of trust where we may be saved, we may know Jesus, but we really haven't trusted him for what happens today or tomorrow or even after that. Fathers, we're going to sing in a moment, the Savior is waiting. Bring us to him. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.